COVID has caused a massive disruption. You probably have a long tail of things going on in your organization, and there's real opportunity here to redeploy them towards a few big, bold moves and things that are really going to move the needle. So, you know, as we say, innovation is not an ideas problem. It's a resource reallocation problem. Reallocate toward the future. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from Laura Furstenthal, a senior partner and one of our guests on the podcast today. Laura leads our innovation practice in North America, and she's joined by her colleague, Eric Roth, who leads our innovation practice globally. Today, we're discussing driving innovation in the face of a crisis. Laura, let's start with the basics. Please take us through how McKinsey defines innovation in the corporate setting. If you look up a dictionary definition, you get things like, you know, creating ideas that are novel or even just the word creativity. We actually believe that innovation is not just defined by novelty or creativity. We believe you really have to think about the impact. And so we believe that innovation has to deliver net new growth that is sustainable, repeatable, and substantial. And you may choose to measure that net new in many different ways. You can focus on net new products, net new markets, new IP, customers or business models. But at the end of the day, it has to increase uh, value and deliver and drive growth. And just one thought on that is the substantial word is really important because often lots of organizations experiment with little things or do a lot of incremental things that take up a lot of resources. And if innovation is really going to be Uh, engine for growth, it has to be meaningfully large enough to matter. Thank you both. Um, So what makes getting innovation right so important right now? First and foremost, uh, amidst all the challenges facing organizations today, there's a really important choice in front of you, both historically and going forward. Successful organizations are going to be those who more often choose innovation, and it really is a choice. Second, experience shows us that while innovation is at the top of the agenda for almost all organizations, far more actually fail than succeed at driving successful innovation. And then finally, uh, being a bold innovator is a choice, and it has to be backed by commitment. And to put your organization on a new growth trajectory, we think requires really both deliberate action and resource reallocation. And winners are going to be the ones that really build purposeful reimagination teams with the right combination of dreamers and doers. So how should business leaders go about identifying and prioritizing specific innovation initiatives, especially in the midst of so much ongoing uncertainty? When we think about how you get to innovation, we've found that every successful innovation from the beginning of history has come at the intersection of three lenses, a customer unmet need or a who, a technology that generates a solution or a what, and a business model that actually enables you to monetize that solution or a how. And another way to think about this is to ask yourself the three questions. First of all, when you think about what you're doing, does it matter? Are customers actually going to benefit from this? Second, can we build it? And what are the technologies and things we need to do that? 
And third, will it win, right? Is there a real opportunity for this to take on a market? And because all of these lenses are required for successful innovation, we actually find that one of the best ways to generate new concepts is actually to collide them in a very structured and purposeful way. And we thought maybe to illustrate the importance of all three lenses, we would consider a question. So Thomas Edison is a very famous and notable inventor. What did he actually invent? What's really interesting is in every case, he didn't just invent a what, he also invented a how. It's the same concept. And in many cases, whether it was the light bulb or the motion picture, picture player, he was not in many cases the first person to create one. The contribution that he made that made it unique is that he made it saleable and scalable. So in the case of the light bulb, as an example, he created the filament and the vacuum tube that made it able to turn off and on. And he created the production process that enabled mass scale production. He and the other thing he did, which was really interesting, is that filament um, that Laura refers to actually is the result of really open innovation in an ecosystem because it was sourced from Asia. It's a very special uh, kind of bamboo that actually made up the original filament uh, that went in the light bulb and of course was enabled by the vacuum seal that Laura mentioned. So he actually was demonstrating many of the principles that organizations struggle to try to uh, put in place um, way, way back when he was creating these things. And what's so fascinating about it is it's a great example of showing all three of these lenses, right? You really do need, and one that are, we find folks often spend the least amount of time on, but can be the most important, not just the technology, not just the customer need, but what is that business model and that scalable operating model that enables you to actually produce something that can really deliver mass scale change. So you both stressed earlier that innovation has to be substantial to merit the resources you need to allocate to it. How do you get to substantial? Does that come from testing many smaller bets? And if the innovation's impact turns out to not be substantial, how do you know whether that's due to the bet itself or to, a, say, a lack of proper execution? I think one of the things we often recommend is we see many folks who, when they come up with ideas, they actually build business plans, right? They say, here's my plan to get there. They lay it out and they lay out all of their assumptions, but those assumptions actually become assertions over time. And what their teams end up doing is spending their time proving that their assumptions were right than actually testing them. And so what we actually recommend instead, instead of building a business plan, build a reverse PL, which is what would need to be true for this idea to meet your hurdle rate and, and get to the level of success that you would be willing to consider it a, a success. And then what we have folks do is actually take those assumptions and rank them by the level of uncertainty and the degree of impact they actually have on the business case. So as you do the reverse PL, which of those assumptions has the biggest impact and is the most uncertain? And we test those first, because that way, if those are the assumptions that fail, we know we need to pivot early versus many times folks will test the piece that is the customer interface or something else, which may not be that. And customers may be saying, oh, I like this. That's great. It's really some element of the business model or the supply chain or the technology that needs to be tested first. 
you're not going to find it till it's too late. So that is one, I think, really important way to get to, am I going to meet that substantiality bar as fast as possible? Eric, I love your thoughts too. Yeah, we recommend getting rid of business cases. They're a waste of energy and time. And I'll even go as far as saying they actually increase risk, not decrease risk for the reasons that Laura just mentioned. Because everybody writes down all their assertions, the hockey stick at the end. And I'm willing to bet the models are dominated by market growth as the dominant variable, not actually the innovation that you're doing. Well, if that's the case, then don't even bother creating anything. Just play along because you're, you're willing to actually do better that way instead of wasting resources. The point is not to like say, don't innovate. The point is to say, if you're going to innovate, do what Laura said, which is start with the end goal. So if you only want businesses of a certain size, start with that number and then work backwards, like Laura said, through the assumptions. And if nobody can conceive of this way to get it to a certain size, well, then maybe it's not the right business for your company. What happens is the process your teams are probably going on looks something like an NPD process, which is a sequential risk management tool. That's the problem, right? Innovation processes are actually iterative and learning-based, not, not linear and, and, and risk management-based. And so when you flip to a learning-driven process as opposed to a activity management process, which most NPD processes are, that's the other part of the, anyway, we can go on for an hour on that one, but there are very known tools and mechanisms to help reverse the dynamic that you're describing. Okay. Thank you. The last 18 months has obviously forced many companies to innovate as they've worked to overcome the many challenges of the pandemic. Could you just share a couple of favorite examples of organizations that have come up with clever and valuable solutions in the midst of these challenges? This is one of my personal favorite examples because I think it's it, it speaks to something very unusual. And we've all heard about art imitating life, but this is life imitating art. And in this case, in an attempt to reach out to patrons and art enthusiasts, when the physical location of the museum was closed, Getty employees decided to dress up as their favorite pieces of art. And this campaign went absolutely viral and caused a sensation that drove a level of engagement, donations, and membership that were vital to keeping the revenue stream going at a time when an attendance-based organization was completely closed. So for me, a great example of pivoting with digital, with, with, with humans, uh, to take something into a totally new space of how to interact with folks. Yeah, you know, it's always funny um, that the old becomes new again. Some of you may be familiar with the Jetsons and how uh, everything in the Jetsons somehow has now come to life, despite the fact that, well, not everything. So we need those flying cars. But the pandemic obviously hit retail in just an un unprecedented way, um, you know, in terms of, you know, lack of traffic coming to stores. We all went digital. And so uh, the creativity and, and ingenuity of retailers to try to come up with ways that leverage their assets, um, retain some level of customer experience, um, and and reconnect the brands back to the people was pretty incredible. And so I don't know if your local Walmart sponsored a drive-in movie, but um, this is one of the more fun examples that, you know, uh, here here's Walmart using their giant parking lots uh, to actually create a form of entertainment and connectivity to the brand uh, in, a, in a time when we all were hungering, I think, for something to do that was outside of our home and safe. Laura, Eric, those were great examples. Thank you. Building on those examples, can you just share with us some of the key things you think companies have learned from navigating the pandemic 
and how they'll carry those things forward in how they approach innovation, or even just sharing what you think they should be taking away from the pandemic? I think we all saw that 2020 was a very difficult year. And beyond that, innovation is a difficult topic. So you put together difficult with difficult. And you know, pre-COVID, all of our surveys showed that innovation was a top priority for the majority of, of executives. In fact, 86% or more were telling us it's a top one to three priority for their organization. And yet when we surveyed uh, executives, we found that less than 10% were satisfied with their innovation performance. And you add to that the challenge of COVID and hearing from those same executives that less than 30% felt like they had the, the capabilities and the preparedness to address the crisis. We did some research looking at pre-COVID, during COVID, and the expectations post-COVID. Many took the COVID crisis as a time where they really needed to batten down the hatches and focus on the core and really defocus away from innovation um, with the expectation that as they recovered from the crisis, they would then return to the same level of focus or maybe even a higher level of focus on innovation. And we wanted to ask the question, is this the right thing to do? We have looked at this across multiple crises, whether it be the SARS epidemic that ravaged Asia in 2002, and actually became the impetus for you know, growth and widespread adoption of online transactions. China became the leader in that area. Whether we go back as far as World War II in the 1940s, when we saw a rapid growth of uh, home appliances and manufacturing of convenience technologies, capitalizing on the needs of the household as women went to work and men went to war. And we see this with many organizations through the financial crisis where we saw a whole lot of stranded assets and unemployed workforce that really enabled the sharing economy among many, many other things. So the learning through, from this is that through many cycles of economic challenge and stress, those who actually innovate through a crisis actually come out stronger. So it's clear that even if you're in the middle of a crisis, it's still very important to innovate. But how do you actually zero in on those right innovations to pursue? And Eric, you've written a seminal piece that was quite popular called The Eight Essentials of Innovation. Perhaps you could share with us that recipe for doing innovation well. There are no silver bullets here. You can't take one thing that works in one place and put it into another organization context and say, ah, it's going to work. Because innovation is really a context-specific sport, if you will. And so while we do have a lot of tools, activities, and best practices, we're also very careful and thoughtful about how to apply them. But most of our research comes from looking at about 5,000 companies over the last seven years. And we've looked at them by working with them, but we've also looked at them by actually building an incredible data set from the inside out. And this data set looks at about 100 activities of what we know promotes, supports, and enables innovation to occur in an organization. But what it does is it allows us to quantitatively understand the state of play in terms of the company's innovativeness or an organization's innovativeness. And those uh, activities actually group into eight things that we call the eight essentials of innovation. So those eight basically group into four buckets. One, it's about strategy and portfolio. Two, it's about the ability to create uh, distinctive value propositions, which are not just products, but, but business models and other forms of value creation. It's about um, launching and scaling up, so taking those value propositions and accelerating them to market. 
and getting them to be as big as they naturally can be. And then mobilizing your culture and your organization, both internally and externally, so that you actually get the best kind of um, reinforcement uh, of, of the activity and celebration of success. We've taken those essentials and we've actually looked at them over time against publicly traded companies to say, well, relative to economic profit creation, how do companies stack up if they satisfy as many of the essentials as they can? So normally many, many organizations say, well, you know, a percent of R&D spend or number of patents or all these indirect indicators of what might make an organization innovative. Well, we don't need to do that because we can actually look at the exact activities of a company and compare it to its economic value, uh, pro- sorry, economic profit and see what happens. Once an organization is satisfied, at least five of the eight essentials, remember essential has a bucket of activities associated with it. There's an exponential curve that occurs in terms of the ability of that organization to generate outsized economic profit relative to its competition, with the maximum being, if you can satisfy up to all eight, seven or eight of them, you get 2.4 times the amount of economic profit of your relative competition. And so the importance of innovation, we can now quantitatively say you need to do a certain, a certain amount of, the, of really core activities well to get the benefit of that. And can you offer any examples of these essentials, Eric, that give us an idea of the kinds of activities they involve to get there, to accomplish them? And how do you determine whether or not you actually have those capabilities in your organization? Um, I was going to say that each one of these essentials has a test question. Well, the first test question is Aspire, which is, does your organization find innovation or net new growth absolutely critical to its future, meeting its future objectives? And has it cascaded those objectives down to the right parts of the organization? If you can answer that question, yes, then you are probably well along the way to doing what we say is the biggest challenge of innovation is reallocating resources to the best opportunities. Now, why is that so hard? It's so hard because of the green box. The heuristic we use is to know if an organization is prepared to be a great innovator is, does it have a green box? What is the green box? Well, so let's say, your organization will use um, revenue as an easy one. So let's pretend the metric that matters is revenue. On the left-hand side is today's revenue. On the right-hand side is five years out, your bold aspiration of what's possible. Now, in order to get from the left-hand side to the right-hand side, there are only four ways. The first bucket is pick well. Pick well is all about selecting the right end market segments, whether you divide them in terms of geography, product category, customer uh, category, what, what, however you want to divide up the world. It's how is the market actually giving you the weighted average on your natural growth rate? So if you did nothing else but participate and got the average growth rate of all the end segments you, you're, you're operating in, that should be your growth rate, the weighted average of all those segments. That tells us the baseline. Now, the next one is do better. Do better is what basically you're out, you're, how you outperform your competition. It's all those activities in the annual plan. Now, some of them have a little bit of innovation. You might have some incremental innovations. It's uh, ingredient changes if you're in the consumer market. It's uh, um, a functionality improvement if you're in an industrial space. It could be all sorts of things, but they're things that are not that risky relative to what the core does. If you only have two, those two boxes, how close do those two boxes add up to the one on the end? The five-year aspiration. Is it a small gap? Is it no gap? Is it a big gap? And the companies that actually have no gap, we find are the ones that struggle the most with innovation. No matter how many times executives can talk about innovation and say great speeches to inspire people, if the business model and the growth model tell people, just keep doing what you're doing today, they will rally and cheer at the speech, walk back to their desk and look around and say, well, 
I guess I just keep doing what I'm doing because no one told me to do anything differently. And it's because there's no green box. The business can actually get to its objectives by just doing the two first buckets. And then sometimes inorganic, you know, M&A comes along and then fills in the gap. So unless there's a real green box and it's designed into the strategic plan, it's very hard for an organization to actually, actually deliver innovation and reallocate resources towards more risky propositions. The other thing that's interesting about the green box is when we find organizations that don't have one and their executives get frustrated that they should, they start creating green box organizations. These appendages like accelerators and CVCs and incubators and all these things that are meant to satisfy the green box, but actually sit on the side and really struggle because in reality, they have very little chance of creating anything but MVPs and prototypes because there's no route to market. The route to market in customers usually sits in the pick well and do better buckets. And so this unnatural uh, sort of tension occurs where you might create really interesting things, but the core of the business doesn't actually need it to satisfy its growth. So the green box represents that step up from what your organization can expect to deliver on its regular growth trajectory compared to your higher level growth aspirations. So there's still a big question that remains though, is like, how does one identify those innovations that are actually going to fill in that green box? So there's still a big question that remains as to how one identifies the innovations that will fill that green box to go back to your point about substantiality. Great innovation, as Laura said earlier, starts with a really valuable problem to solve. The great problem to solve is starts with an outcome. So it's a value of a potential opportunity. And then we basically use a formula. We say, how many customers are excited about that outcome? How much do they actually pay today and how frequently does it occur? And then the most important thing, which is often forgotten or never asked, is the frustration level with the existing solutions. If the frustration level with the existing solutions is high, the likelihood of switching and the likelihood that people will pay more goes up. If it's low, you can create the better whatever, and the likelihood that anyone's going to switch to it is very low because they're just not frustrated with the current alternative. You can actually quantify the opportunity using valuable this formula and understand which really are the most valuable problems to solve and what's the degree of difficulty in terms of going after them if you can understand frustration levels. Yet even when companies identify that valuable problem to solve, they sometimes still struggle to bring those innovations to fruition. As you said at the beginning, innovation that goes beyond incremental is really hard. Do you have any advice there? You know, one of the things that does really make a difference is moving from activity management, so using a linear or even iterative new product development process to something that really is about outcomes and focusing on the decisions that need to be made and not the activities that need to be done. We've actually created a platform which allows a team to problem solve their way to profit. So mapping out all the assumptions that interconnect, whether they're qualitative and quantitative, and create a score in terms of probability to exceed based on the number of risks and a range around the number of, based on the uncertainty. So a company, an organization can put in place a way to de-risk any initiative, particularly an innovation related one, by just creating some transparency around the assumptions and forcing a team not to just assert things and not to just put a hockey stick on the business plan, but actually work through the pathway to profit through the critical assumptions that need to be true in order to make it happen. Thanks, Eric. Uh, Laura, I've got one for you now. If I'm a leader frustrated with a lack of innovation in my organization, what should I do tomorrow to start to fix it? One is 
make sure you're reallocating towards the future. COVID has caused a massive disruption. Customer needs have changed. You probably have a long tail of things going on in your organization. And there's real opportunity here to redeploy them towards a few big, bold moves and things that are really going to move the needle. So, you know, as we say, innovation is not an ideas problem. It's a resource reallocation problem. Reallocate toward the future. The second is embed flexibility. When, when you run into crises, you know, it's really important to role model and put a, a structure in place where it's not okay to say this is the way we've always done it. We now need to think about the way we now do it and make sure that you're role modeling that in your organization. And then finally, hack your processes. You know, most of the time we find, as Eric was saying, that through the years you've had folks who have compliance mindset, risk aversion, process, uh, discipline, and have put in place all sorts of things that get in the way of, you know, what's at the core, which is usually things like delighting the culture, or sorry, delighting the customer. So, you know, really changing that culture starts with getting to focusing, as Eric said, on the decisions that matter and hacking all those processes that get in the way. And, you know, the last thought I'd leave you with on this one is uh, when we talked about the green box, Eric said, as an example, you can measure it with revenue. Many of our clients measure their green box in other metrics, customer experience, cost to serve, number of clicks, cost to serve. So I think thinking about what are the two or three green boxes that are most important to your organization for the future and how those have shifted, especially over the last year or two, is also critically important because it'll change the way you think about what it is you're optimizing for. And it may be not ROI in a traditional revenue sense, but, but other important metrics. Laura, Eric, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. This was a really interesting and fun conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, and thank you to all of our listeners. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion. A transcript will be made available on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our library of more than 60 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. If you're interested in receiving alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on the bottom of our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR or follow us at MCK Strategy on Twitter and connect with us on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.